You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What follows is a To Stir With Love conversation that we had last week. It featured some of the most incredible legal minds of the last half century and legal hearts. Alan Dershowitz, uh, Matt Lewin, and Dennis Raps. All of them are stalwarts of the legal system of the United States and have also been extremely important for Jewish causes and general civil rights causes. Um, what precipitated our conversation was the death of January 24th of the former state <coughs> speaker of the State Assembly of New York, Sheldon Silver. Now, his death uh, was, of course, uh, really the last part of a tragedy that had been developing for a number of years. And we thought it would be worthwhile to flesh out some of the points, and you're going to hear it uh, in a minute or so, a couple of minutes, actually. Uh, Because of the quick nature of how the program was put together, uh, basically a cold call on Sunday afternoon led to a Tuesday evening conversation with three of the most important uh, lawyers in the country. And uh, due to that fact, there was uh, not, I believe, not enough really uh, an explanation of what really had occurred with Sheldon Silver, especially if this podcast is being listened to by persons who aren't that familiar with the politics here in uh, the Northeast section of the United States. So I'm going to really preface uh, the podcast recording with this introduction, and I'm also going to do, I hope, a, a service to the three men who were part of our panel, because I wasn't able really to introduce them and give them their props. So I will now go through what it is that, uh, who, what was the case, and what it was about. Now, Sheldon Silver, as I said, died in January 24th, was an American Democratic Party politician. He was an attorney who served as Speaker of the New York State Assembly from 1994 to 2015. He was a native of Manhattan's Lower East Side, an Orthodox Jew whose parents were Russian immigrants. He graduated from the Rabbi Jacob Joseph High School on Henry Street, where he was captain of the basketball team. He graduated from Yeshiva University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1965, and he earned his Juris Doctor from Brooklyn Law School in 1968. He came to be known as one of the most powerful politicians in the state. The system he was part of, as you're going to hear in the podcast, was referred to by its critics as the three men in a room. The governor at that time during uh, Shelley's uh, reign was, was Governor Cuomo. Uh, former Senator Dean Skelos, who was the uh, Speaker of the State Senate. And of course, he also was indicted and served a prison sentence. And Mr. Silver. They privately, quietly conferred how to allocate what was then a huge $60 billion state budget. 
Now it should be noted that there was there was criticism in the Jewish community towards Shelley Silver. Um, he did vote in favor of the gay rights legislation um, that did create state laws that are definitely in direct contravention to Jewish law. Uh, according to Larry Gordon in the Five Towns Jewish Times, Silver had conferred with Rabbanim who guided him on these matters. They said his vote in favor of what was obviously not the Torah's view would enable him to maintain his not insignificant influence in state government and allow him to continue to direct funding to the issues and institutions in the New York Jewish communities. I should also say that Silver was always there to help so many Jewish causes and many Orthodox causes, whether it had to do with Hatzalah and uh, really protecting those that wanted to keep Shabbos, as he did. Uh, Silver was arrested on federal corruption charges in early 2015, and they were federal charges. And you're going to hear in the podcast how they could be federal charges if it was what was mostly state corruption. But part of the idea was, was that there was an extortion and that it was wire fraud because he was using um, the internet and other ways to uh, to make his point. So there you, again, it's called wire fraud and mail fraud. The investigation prosecution was led by U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara. Um, now, as soon as the charges were brought, the Silver did resign of Speaker of the Assembly as these charges were pending. Now, you should realize, and this is going to come up in the podcast as well, but it's not that clear. So I want to make it uh, make the point crystallized. New York state legislators are considered part-time workers, and they typically hold other positions. Silver uh, was of counsel of Weitz and Luxembourg, which is one of New York state's largest personal injury litigation firms. It was income that he received from Weitz and Luxembourg, and the matter in which he obtained it that was part of his arrest. Now, he had, uh, this was the, uh, the evidence that was shown that he had directed $500,000 in state grants to Dr. Robert Taub, who was a researcher in diseases that were caused by asbestos. Um, and he was the director of the Columbia University Mesothelioma <laughs> Center. Hard word to say. Um, Taub review, referred asbestos claimants to Silver's firm, which was Weitz and Luxembourg. Silver got a $1.4 million salary from Weitz and Luxembourg. I guess that was a yearly salary. Um, and from those referral fees for those asbestos cases, he received $3.9 million. Now, he also was shown in his trial uh, and the charges were there to, to back that up in the trial, that he received $700,000 of referral fees from Goldberg and Iyami, and Iriami, which was a law firm that specialized in seeking reductions of New York City real estate taxes for real estate developers. Now, here he um, persuaded developers who had business with the state to use that firm because that firm was the expert in lowering uh, the real estate taxes that would be imposed on the buildings that were going to be built. Um, There was a third charge, a third area, which was that uh, he had made illegal investments through private vehicles um, and netting a profit of $750,000. 
Uh, Silver, as you're going to hear in the podcast, felt that none of this was illegal, and he pleaded not guilty. Uh, in November, uh, November 30th, 2015, a jury uh, unanimously found him guilty on all seven counts, which meant that he was expelled from the assembly. He was no longer able to hold office. And as soon as he was found guilty, the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division, which deals with judicial and attorney misconduct, uh, they affirmed that he was automatically disbarred as a convicted felon from being a lawyer. He was sentenced on May uh, 3rd, 2016 by uh, federal judge Valerie Caproni. She's not mentioned by name, but you'll hear about her in the recording of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. Uh, he, she presided over the trial. She sentenced him originally to 12 years in prison and ordered him to pay $5.3 million in ill-gotten gains and another $1.75 million. Um, and he received uh, those terms, 12 years and another 10 years on the 7th to run concurrently. Now, Silver was able to make bail and he was free on bail and he appealed his case. Now, a panel of judges in uh, the United States District Court uh, considered his appeal based on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in McDonnell versus United States. And that already had reversed a similar conviction of former Governor Bob McDonnell. So they narrowed the kinds of activities that constitute corruption. And therefore, what McDonnell, again, I don't know the exact details, but McDonnell was, what he had done was not considered, based on the Supreme Court's ruling, uh, a a case of, of, of corruption or extortion. And therefore, uh, Silver's conviction was then overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit on July 13th. Now, they just, the, the, the prosecutor decided not to offer Silver a plea, but to actually retry him. And on May 11, 2018, after another trial, he was found guilty on all counts. And the judge this time, two years later, uh, sentenced him to seven years in prison uh, because citing his advancing age at that point. Uh, Silver was there, was due to report to prison on October 2018, but he appealed his conviction to once again to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Um, now, January 2020, the panel dismissed three of those charges stemming from those invest that was in the asbestos case uh, with, uh, with, with right. but they upheld the four charges that were related to the kickbacks about the from Goldberg and Ariyami were the ones that of course that was the firm that was uh, the experts in getting the real estate taxes lowered uh, they also felt that he was guilty of money laundering and they sent the case back to Judge Caproni for resentencing. So she resentenced him. Again, there wasn't another trial, but she was re- he was resentenced on July 20th for six and a half years, um, somehow knocking off some of that and a fine of $1 million. Now, he went to prison in Otisville, New York, a federal prison on August 6th, 2020. Um, now, he was released, and you're going to hear about that in the podcast, too. Uh, on May 4th, 2021, on their provision of the CARES Act, which allows prison bureaus to release those deemed vulnerable to COVID-19. 
but he was recalled to a medical care specialized federal prison in Devons, Massachusetts, two days later on May 6th. And as you're going to hear in the podcast, that had to do with a lot of pressure, uh, pressure that was uh, generated by a very proactive press. Now, he was in Devons, but according to several people very close to him and the family, he was neglected and not cared for appropriately there. As his uh, situation uh, continued uh, to get worse, he had lost over 90 pounds. Um, He was a little more than a shadow of himself. Uh, his attorneys tried everything to have him released for weeks. Hatsala Air was on standby, waiting for an order to fly to Massachusetts uh, to bring him to a hospital there. Uh, the prison officials in Devons believed that they, although it was a federal hospital facility, they couldn't help him. They felt he should be able to go to a better equipped hospital near his home in New York City. But there were delays, red tape. Um, the office of the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, um, stalled. And what they did do was take him to out of that uh, federal hospital and he was he, they took him to the Neshoba Valley Medical Center, which was in Ayer, Massachusetts, uh, a much smaller hospital than Columbia Presbyterian, where uh, they wanted to airlift him to. And he died, as I said, on January 24th. He was less than a month before his 78th birthday. Um, As you're going to hear from Alan Dershowitz, he came within a few hours of having a six-year sentence commuted by President Trump. Um, The commutation was withdrawn at the last moment, and you're going to hear from uh, from Mr. Dershowitz and Mr. Rapps as to why that that commutation uh, did not occur. Um, We should probably say that Trump liked and admired Silver. Uh, He agreed to go to bat for him and commute an unnecessary and unvalid sentence that the way it was presented uh, by Dershowitz and others. Trump, of course, was a, a New York businessman and real estate mogul, and his company probably interfaced often uh, with people in New York trying to navigate the complicated laws and building codes. And Trump obviously knew who Shelley Silver was, but he needed every anti-impeachment vote he could muster because he wanted to not be impeached and remain in office. So as you're going to hear from uh, Mr. Dershowitz, Republican leaders in New York warned that if you went ahead and commuted the sentence, uh, they would work to recruit additional Senate Republicans who were on the fence over impeachment, and Trump would leave in ignominious, ignominious defeat. Um, now, so we have this all-star panel of legal minds, as I said. Um, I guess the headliner here is Alan Dershowitz, who as a Brooklyn College alumnus, uh, and though he was a Yale Law School graduate, he actually went to Harvard and uh, as an associate professor, and then he taught there from 1964 to 2013. He was appointed in 1993 as the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law. He is, of course, very well known as a regular media contributor, political commentator, legal analyst. Uh, his, uh, he won, his, and as he mentions here on the podcast, a number of appeals uh, the most, some of the most famous ones, of course, are Harry Reams in 70s, 1976 and 1984. Of course, the Claus Van Bulow had been convicted of the attempted murder of his wife. He's an author of several books about politics and the law. Uh, he's an ardent Zionist in support of Israel. And his books on the Arab-Israeli conflict are considered a nece- necessary reading in many circles. Uh, Nate or Nathan Lewin who has argued many cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, he was born in the same city my father, 
of Lodz in Lodz. But he was able to leave Poland uh, before the Nazis in 1939. Um, he, he, spent, he arrived in the U.S. in 1941. He grew up in New York City. He received his BA from Yeshiva College, which was called then, not Yeshiva University yet. And he earned his JD Magna Cum Laude from Harvard in 1960. Uh, he was, again, if you go through all of his accomplishments, it would take the, the whole program, but he was just a highlight. He was an assistant to Solicitor General in the Department of Justice under Archibald Cox and then Thurgood Marshall. He served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. He was on the federal prosecution team of the murderers of the three civil, right worker, civil rights workers in Mississippi. Uh, upon leaving government service uh, in the process as, as a prosecutor, uh, he founded a law firm. The law firm that he presently uh, works out of is Lewin and Lewin, which he uh, shares with his daughter. Uh, it specializes in white collar criminal defense and federal appellate litigation. It's located in Washington, D.C. Uh, 2020 U.S. News announced that, uh, that Lewin and Lewin was among their best law firms in the country. Um, as I said, he has argued in front of the Supreme Court actually 28 times. Um, the D.C. Legal Times calls him one of the greatest lawyers of the past 30 years, and he was number two by the, uh, the magazine, The Washingtonian, the number two. I'm not sure number one is. Um, if you go to America's Best Lawyers, he's been on that list for the last 30 years. And uh, he actually becomes one of the best lawyers in four different distinct categories, which is appellate litigation, defense of white collar crime, and First Amendment litigation. Now, Dennis Rapps uh, is the longtime executive director and general counsel for the National Jewish Commission on Law and Public Affairs. He's also the editor of the opinion page of the Jewish Press, which many people know is the largest independent Jewish weekly. And Based on the online uh, vibrant Jewish press, there are 2 million views each month. For 45 years and more, Mr. Rapps has been a leading champion of the rights of Orthodox Jews, Shabbos, observance, kashras, synagogue, school construction, Erevin. Um, the, as the executive director of Kolpa, um, you should realize that that is a, a voluntary association of attorneys they represent the observant Jewish community on legal, legislative, and public affairs matters. And they'll represent you without a fee. And there are thousands of individuals and institutions that rely on them consistently to represent them in federal and state courts throughout the United States. And Culpa and Mr. Rapps uh, have been also made representations, presentations before the Supreme Court of the United States. So, that is your background. You should realize that this discussion actually goes into a number of issues, um, the health risks in prisons, uh, problems in jury trials, um, the, uh, and anti-Semitism, how much of a factor that was in the Shelley Silver case and in the Ruboshkin case, in the Mendel Epstein case, uh, Gittin and the FBI sting. Uh, we also talk about flight risks and why Orthodox Jews are considered flight risks uh, when other people that are arrested are not and why uh, they are refused bail and uh, many times uh, other sorts of accommodations. Um, we also talk about how the system, and especially in the federal courts, has become so adversarial. 
and in general, um, you know, again, uh, can juries understand these type of subtleties? So <laughs> give you a lot of introduction there to what you're going to hear. Again, um, I, I hope that it's enlightening. And again, it was a great honor uh, to be able to serve and <laughs> in a modest way as the moderator uh, for this event. Shalma Brocha, this is to stir with love, a criminal justice reform podcast. On uh, tonight's episode, we have a panel that to say, to call it distinguished would be the understatement of this 21st century. Uh, we have with us, um, in no specific order, but just the way I'm looking at it, Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, Mr. Dennis Raps, and uh, Mr. Nathan Lewin. Uh, these are men who are very, um, his death really underscores some issues and problems in the criminal justice system. These, some of these problems have been explained and developed by our illustrious panel. Um, I want to start in why it, it was a federal case. Why, since it seems to have been uh, some sort of state corruption, why did it need federal intrusion? Well, I mean, I, I cannot really speak to the detail. Colonel Lavraca, who was, I consider, a very close friend and a very great uh, legislator. And I follow in the newspapers the fact that they had prosecuted him on federal charges uh, that related to uh, his uh, being a legislator and at that time uh, getting a uh, benefit uh, in exchange for legislation. Now, maybe Avi Dershowitz has followed it more closely in views, which I would be happy to express later on about what I thought were the flaws in um, this prosecution. Uh, not technical legal flaws, but really uh, uh, what I think is the subject of this discussion this evening, questions of prosecutorial abuse and prosecute what they call prosecutorial discretion. But let me let me defer to either to the case relatively late. My primary role was to try to persuade President Trump to pardon uh, Shelley. Um, I didn't know him personally. I just followed his career, and I thought he was a great legislator, as Nat did, and a great Jew and a great American. And his charges never should have been federal charges. They should have been. Uh, state uh, charges, um, but they were federal charges, and then they were reversed on appeal. And um, the prosecutor, instead of you know what usually happens in cases like that, offering a deal for time served or for a very short period of time, really went after him um, very aggressively and, and sentenced him uh, to far, far too long a sentence. Uh, I came into the case trying very hard to get him a commutation, um, and I spoke to President Trump about it. And when I spoke to President Trump about it, it sounded like the commutation would occur. And then apparently some Republican legislators got to President Trump and persuaded him that it would not be good for the Republican Party uh, if this leader of the Democratic Party were to be uh, commuted. And the, the tragedy is that he then... Uh, ended up in prison. He ended up um, uh, not being given proper medical care at the end of his life and uh, essentially getting a death penalty for what should have been 
uh, a state offense uh, and a relatively uh, short sentence, even if all the allegations that were made against him uh, were true. But I'd love to hear from Dennis as well. Well, I certainly don't know the, uh, the ins and outs of the uh, prosecution, um, but um, the, I just wanted to add what you said uh, about uh, President Trump changing his mind. Um, as it turns out, and you may know this, but um, his wife, Rosa, was contacted uh, the night before the, the announcement was made that he was going to be pardoned. As a public announcement, and uh, she was told to come pick him up in the morning from the uh, from the prison. And uh, somehow the news was leaked from the White House, and uh, the New York Times ran a whole story about it. And um, everything went went south after that. Like you said, he changed his mind apparently uh, yeah. after making. I'm sorry after making um, a determination that he uh, qualified and he should get commutation, uh, it turns out that uh, the political powers that the even behind the, the president brought um, um, pressure and uh, it was reversed. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's part of the pattern there uh, about how he was treated. I mean, I've never heard um, uh, um, of anybody uh, being treated this way. First, as you recall, he was given a furlough. And then I think it was like for 48 hours, he was, then he was brought back into prison uh, because uh, the newspapers went, went crazy. And, um, I, you know, when you think about it, um, even though the numbers weren't exactly the same, Dean Skelos, who was, after all, his counterpart in government, uh, was prosecuted um, you know, for almost, this, I think, under the same statute, and um, nobody made a big deal about it. He was he was sentenced. I think it was in um, in January of 1919, and he uh, was given a, uh, a furlough, a continuing furlough, because of COVID in April of the following year, and you know. Nobody said said boom. I don't think I read anything about it in the New York Post, yep. the Daily News, nothing. And with Shelley, every time you know uh, if he sneezed and somebody said Gesundheit, it was in the newspaper. Yeah. No, this was trial by the media, no doubt. And I don't know. I'll, I won't use the term anti-Semitism. I'll leave it to people to make a judgment. But let me tell you a fact, and then you can decide whether it was anti-Semitism. I was told uh, by a number of sources that part of the problem was that President Trump had given commutations to a number of Jewish prisoners who had been advocated for by organizations such as Aleph and Chabad and organizations like that. And I think there was a, a, a leaning over backwards not to give uh, a very visible Jew like, uh, like Shelley uh, the benefit of a commutation. I think being Jewish hurt his chances of getting a commutation. Call that anti-Semitism, call that whatever you want to call it, but there's no question that his name was John Smith and it was everything were the same. I think his sentence would have been commuted. Well, my, again, my feeling about the case, 
I was not involved at all in, in the pardon application, and I was very unhappy that he did not receive a pardon. But my view of the case is that it should never, neither state nor federal court, from what I read at the time, should have been brought. Shelley Silver was, I knew that from, you know, personal experience and meeting him and talking to him, was very punctilious about not capitalizing for personal gain on his enormous power that he had as a speaker of the assembly. What he did do, apparently, according to the evidence, is comparable to what many, many New York state legislators did. And, you know, Skelos is mentioned because he was prosecuted also, but I think there probably are dozens who did similar conduct in the years before Shelley Silver was prosecuted for what he was prosecuted, and they were not touched. It was assumed if you were a legislator in New York, and New York is unusual, I must say, in the District of Columbia, referral fees are illegal. You can't, because you refer a client to an attorney, take a fee just for the referral. But in New York, it's customary. They've done that for decades. And what Shelley is accused of having done, and I guess there was some testimony to that effect, was that there was a person who had received his charitable organization, received a uh, a, a appropriation from, by the New York legislature. And that person recommended people who had the disease, mesothelioma, to the law firm with which Shelley was associated. He did not take money directly. He apparently received the benefits of having referred clients to that, his firm. Now, again, as I understood it, that was customary was. in New York. But under new, a new ethical guidelines that the prosecutors discovered, they prosecuted Shelley Silver for having done that and apparently similarly got uh, various other referral fees for other clients. Now, that had never, I think, previously been basis for criminal prosecution. But because Shelley Silver was so notorious, so well-known, so powerful, people decided that they were going to prosecute him. And that is a basic flaw, and I'd love to hear what Avi Dershowitz says about it. But in my experience, I found that a basic flaw in the criminal justice system in the United States. I agree. I agree completely. Very, very uh, uh, ambitious young prosecutors decide that, ah, there's a target that they'll go after. They did this with Shalom Raboshkin, who did not, did not commit crimes. I'm sorry. Maybe the worst that he did is he hired immigrants who were not legally valid in the United States, as did every slaughterhouse in the United States, and they raided him for that. They focused 
on the Roboskin uh, kosher uh, processing plant and performed a massive raid there with the assistance of the judge who ultimately sentenced Shalom Roboskin. That was the another outrage that the same judge who supervised the raid supervised the trial of federal trial of Shalom Roboskin and then sentenced him for a long sentence. That was an outrage. Mr. Lewin, the fact that you're putting these two cases together, are you suggesting that what they have in common is that the uh, focus was an Orthodox Jew? Is that what you're trying to imply? I have represented many Orthodox Jews and unfortunately seen many injustices with regard to them. Now, I think that the fact that Roboshkin was an Orthodox Jew was something which was capitalized on by the prosecutors. They loved the picture of this man with a beard being hauled in when he was indicted. Every white collar criminal case I have ever been involved in, and I'm sure that everyone that Dershowitz has been involved in, if the prosecutors go through a procedure under which they decide they will indict your client, they notify the lawyer and say, please come in to plead. They didn't do that with Sholem Raboshkin. They sent out agents with manacles in order to put them around this man and alerted photographers that they should take pictures of him as he was hauled into federal court. That was anti-Semitic. It was geared to the fact that this man wore a beard and looked very Jewish. Yes, so, I think that, but, but, that, but, I, 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 by the way, agree. As you know, I helped get uh, Rubashkin a commutation um, yeah. of Hanukkah from uh, President Trump, and I didn't have to work hard on it. All I had to do was explain to him what Nat was just saying now. And as soon as I told President Trump the facts of the Roboshkin case and the fact that the government threatened the people who were going to buy his company away so that the damages would be greater and the sentence would be greater, as soon as President Trump heard that, he turned to his assessments and said, make it happen, make it happen. And a few weeks later, uh, Roboshkin got his uh, his commutation, um, and and I think with with Shelley Siegel, Nat is is, is Shelley uh, Silver. Nat is one hundred percent correct. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the local congressman in the United States was Emanuel Seller, and everybody knew that Emanuel Seller had two offices: one is congressional office, and right next to it was his legal office, and. Uh, there were referral cases back and forth. This was business as usual. And the criminal law is not supposed to be creative. Young prosecutors are not supposed to say, let's make new criminal on the back of this defendant. Civil, possibly, but not criminal. Criminal law has to be clear. Thomas Jefferson once said that the criminal law has to be so clear that somebody has to be able to understand it if they read it while running. And this law is so unclear and so open-ended and so subject to discretion. And it was used, um, I think, outrageously against uh, uh, Shelley. But I think the most damaging part of his case was the way he was treated toward the end of his life. Uh, He should not have done it. 
president. He should have died at home with his family. Um, he, he should have lived, and he could have lived if he gotten the right medical care. But by denying him the right medical care, they guaranteed, essentially, that he would die in prison. And it's a, a terrible travesty of, of injustice. I would just add that to, to bring it back to what we were saying before about the, uh, you know, was it anti-Semitism or wasn't it? Um, again, I'm not going to draw any conclusions, but I do want to note the, and, and uh, compare it to the Silos experience. If you recall, you mentioned something, uh, Alan, you mentioned something about uh, how, uh, you know, oh, no, Nat said something about uh, how you always uh, get a call uh, from the prosecutors to bring your client in. Right. And uh, in this case, that happened with Skelos. Nobody even knew when he was being, uh, you know, he had a report. And with Shelley, there was this picture all over the Daily News and the New York Post, Shelley in handcuffs in a distorted uh, uh, posture with his hat. He had a straw hat. It was a traditional straw hat, white straw hat that was like crushed onto his head. And he couldn't even sit up straight. This went, this went viral. Why? The same statute, the same basic allegations. One, Skelos was treated, uh, you want to say humanely, and Shelley was not. So, so, so I, know none, I know none of you here were his, uh, his lawyers defending him, but it sounds like there's, uh, there were many, many points that could have been brought up, starting with as, as Professor Dershowitz says, what right does the federal prosecutor even have to have jurisdiction in this case? And um, and in terms of, I'm sure, didn't the, did the appeals uh, bring these points up? Was, were these things that were, and if they were, why were they ignored? And well, I, they I guess, weren't. First appeal, the conviction was reversed based on a misapplication, misinstructions. And I think Nat will agree with me both of us have been very fortunate. We've won lots of appeals. Um, you know, the average appellate victory rate is about 2% across the country. And Nat and I have done much, much better than that. But when, when Nat and I have won appeals, for the most part, when the case is sent back, usually the prosecution is at a disadvantage. They offer a very good plea or they don't bring the charges the second time around. But in this case, they vindictively doubled down and uh, managed to get uh, a conviction. And it's very rare for the same court to reverse the conviction twice. And um, so um, uh, it was reversed the first time. And that's very unusual to have somebody, in my experience at least, serve a long prison term and die in prison after his first conviction was reversed. And, and the point is, I think, this was the use of a federal statute. And again, I, in terms of preparing for this, I have not gone back over the precise statute and precisely what he was charged with. But it was a novel use of a right. statute, which the Supreme Court, as a matter of fact, had construed very narrow and has reversed some earlier convictions based on that. Nonetheless, the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York brought this case again under that statute with their reading of it. It was reversed the first time. 
And the second time, the Court of Appeals reversed half of the charges and allowed the other half to stand. So that the whole uh, aura of the case was one in which the application of this federal statute was very dubious. Right. And yet it came down on Shelley with uh, both the prosecutors and the sentencing judge, I have to say, came down very heavily on him. Uh, and I think it was attributable in part, maybe uh, psychologically, maybe not openly, to the fact that he was an Orthodox Jew and supported. And here I, it's important to emphasize, uh, and I saw it, that at every opportunity that he had, Shelley Selver supported Jewish rights, right. Orthodox Jewish observance. Any time he had a chance to do it, whether with publicity or not with publicity, he would support it. He was, to my mind, maybe one of only two legislators in the United States on whom the observant Jewish community could totally respect and rely on. And that was Shelley Silver. And that's what he how he should be remembered, not with the headlines that accompanied his death, which always put in the unfortunate fact of his conviction. He didn't deserve to have that tied to his name when he I died. Agree. And I think it raises a broader question. Um, the Orthodox Jewish community has generally been supportive of people who have supported the Jewish causes. But I have to tell you, the conservative, reform, and secular Jewish community has not done that. They tend to back away, shanda from the gate. They tend to move away from anybody who's obviously Jewish. And when injustices are done to Jews, to Orthodox Jews, mostly the reformed community, the conservative community, the secular Jewish community has either piled on or ignored they haven't understood the sense that if somebody has devoted his life to helping you, you have to at least, at least give him the benefit of the doubt and work hard to see that justice is done. The Jewish community failed um, uh, Shelley uh, very badly. And um, I think if they had united behind him, not only the Orthodox community, but the rest of the Jewish community, I do think that his chances of getting a commutation would have increased. I, absolutely, I, I agree totally. But and I let me let me even bring in another case in my experience, which is the case of Rabbi Epstein and the Aguna issue. I mean, there were very, uh, uh, very upstanding rabbis who, in terms of the problem of Agunot, of women whose husbands refused to give them a get have taken very active steps sure. to get the, the recalcitrant husband to give a get. And Rabbi Epstein maybe went to the extreme on that. But the federal government created, absolutely manufactured uh, uh, a case in which they taught a woman to act as if she was an aguna 
and another actor to act as if he was her brother so that they could entrap Epstein and other people into going out to uh, uh, meet what was going to be a recalcitrant husband. This was all a sham. And yet what they did is they went through with the performance and they arrested everybody who was on that scene. Right. And Epstein, to my knowledge, is still in jail. Yeah, yeah. Can, can, can I ask, I know that the, some people are on a tight schedule here. I, I wanted to just ask, uh, we know that Shelley Silver was was in ill health and he was he died in a in a small hospital in Massachusetts and they were hoping to bring him uh airlift him to Columbia Presbyterian to maybe save his life why why we know why was his health issue not uh, put forward more strongly or if it was why was it rejected As someone in ill health why shouldn't uh, what was the, what was mitigating against him having home confinement and being able to be uh, dealt with in a way that could have saved his life? What, I, I've had several clients in similar situations who were uh, furloughed, who were allowed to go home, who were allowed to go to hospitals. After all, Shelley was not a flight risk. Shelley was not a risk of committing crimes. It was just a question of Rachmanis, and they wouldn't do it. You know, the Bureau of Prisons says we have great hospitals. They don't have great hospitals. And uh, he should have been allowed to go to Columbia Presbyterian. And I've had other clients who, especially because of COVID, have been allowed to go home and have been allowed to stay home. I just celebrated last Arab Shabbos with a doctor uh, who was allowed to go home temporarily. And just uh, Arab Shabbos, he got the notice that he didn't have to go back to prison and his sentence was basically uh, over. And uh, for some, they said yes. For others, they said no. And for Shelley, they said no, and it cost him his life. Based on being, technically, he was a flight risk, they said. Was that no, the reason? Well, that's absurd. Is that what they that's, said? What, what, was, what was their rationale for rejecting it, Professor? I, I don't think there was a rationale. The Bureau of Prisons has to give a rationale. But Nat and I remember when there were some cases in the Eastern District of New York, but also I think in the Southern District of New York, but I remember one in the Eastern, where a prosecutor said, this person is a flight risk because he's Jewish. And as a result of being Jewish, he can flee to Israel and Israel won't return him. And we got the Justice Department ultimately to rebuke that prosecutor. But prosecutors were making that argument that Jews are flight risk because they come to Israel. People don't realize how aggressive Israel is in returning people to the United States, Israel doesn't want to become a place of asylum for American fugitives. But that kind of uh, very direct anti-Semitism has percolated through uh, some prosecutors who say that Jews are automatically flight risks because they can go to Israel. Where was Shelley going to go? He wasn't going to go anywhere. He has his family in the United States. In terms of the, that that terrible flight risk uh, claim uh, that was done against Robashkin, even out in Iowa. They, they claimed initially that he should not be allowed out on bail because he was a flight risk because he could go to Israel. He was Jewish. And the district judge, as hostile as she was, and as frankly, as aggressively anti-Robashkin as she was, 
saw that that was impermissible. We had a, you know, uh, uh, there was an outrage already expressed almost immediately, and she had to reverse that and yeah. say, no, that you can't do that. And yet that's still, I have to tell you, I have still come across cases recently where prosecutors have tried to use that against Jewish defendants. Well, I have to go, but I just want to say how lucky America is, how lucky the Jewish community is, how lucky the legal community is to have Nat Lewin. Nat Lewin is a treasure to Judaism. Nat Lewin is a treasure to America. He's a treasure to the world. It's one of the great pleasures of my life to have started to work with him when I was 28 years old. And I think you were 29 years old. We argued a case together in the Supreme Court. And we continue to work together on cases to this day, 60 years later. It's been one of the great treasures of my life to be able to work uh, so closely and uh, with Nat Lewin. I love Nat Lewin. He is a, one of the greatest lawyers in American history. I can't so, exactly. What do so say to that? Other than that, it is so mutual. I mean, it's an honor for me every time my name is associated with Alan Dershowitz. <clears throat> and <clears throat> people say to me, you know, you're in this case with Dershowitz. And I say, I'm proud to do that. He speaks up and he's, he has spoken up recently on issues on which the woke community is trying to silence him. Yeah. And Dershowitz will not be silenced. Dershowitz will speak out and will speak out the truth and will tell it as it is. And that's why I'm always proud uh, and to hear what my friend Alan Dershowitz let, says. You know, till 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 120, let's work together to do justice for the Jewish. Can I, I got Thank you, thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. And I know that uh, uh, if, if we, I know we still have a great disparity between federal and state. We, I, I've heard from former incarcerated persons that the state medical facilities are, uh, are, are horrendous. Um, Shelley was in a federal uh, prison in Devon, Massachusetts, but clearly it didn't have the facilities. And it, it seems that it should not be a death sentence to be sent to prison. And we know illness does rear its head pretty consistently in prison. Um, well, I mean, you know, the amazing thing is that in today's society, prosecutors are saying, they shouldn't give prison to people who go into stores and shoplift and walk out with goods that are in the stores. You shouldn't send to prison people who hold up a store but don't hurt anybody with it. Just brandish the gun and take the money and go out. Let them stay out of prison. Why can't the white-collar criminal defendants who are in federal prison, if they're ill, be released in order to get medical treatment? They can be released and subjected to supervision like they would be, you know, if they had home detention and get their medical treatment outside of prison. You're ready to release murderers almost, I mean, who has been convicted of fraud. He's not a menace to society if he gets out of prison for medical treatment. There ought to be a procedure under which people are released from prison for medical treatment. You can, you know, you leave out of prison 
people who commit shoplifting or commit other crimes because society today says that's not the way to treat them. Why is it right to treat a sick defendant who's in federal prison in the prison? Release him. Let me just add one thing, one concept. Is this not an outgrowth of of what's happened in the federal courts lately that there's this notion that there's a winner and a loser, almost like a, um, a civil uh, litigation where uh, the government becomes just another litigant and uh, it's us and them. And when they do convict, that spills out over the uh, prison uh, time. And they make decisions in, that, in the same way along those lines. And, you know, they, they don't cut anybody any slack because you're, you're the enemy. You lost, and now you got to pay the consequences. It's not a question of doing justice anymore and, and, and vindicating the, the public will it is, or the public interest. And I think that that's, that's just what happened here and and a continuation of that. Anyway, I mean, and, and that, I don't know whether that can be uh, corrected, but uh, I Maybe you don't agree, but I think that that's, that seems to me what's in play here. I, I want to bring in my, my, my co-host, uh, Rabbi Kolakowski, but you know, I think both Mr. Raps and, and Mr. Woon, you, you know that it's, it's going to cost the government less money ultimately for home confinement, right? It, clearly, home confinement is still less expensive than keeping someone uh, in a prison, guarded, and obviously, with health considerations, it's, uh, I know that's part of what the Tzedek Association's argument has been, that this is something which will actually help in the federal budget. Yitzchak, did you want to say something to the panel? Well, I, as far as this issue of medical treatment, I know I, I'm a chaplain in Pennsylvania in a state prison, and our regular practice is to send the inmates outside for medical treatment for all kinds of treatments, whether it's, uh, and certainly... We try as much as possible that uh, an inmate should not die in in prison unless you know if if they're if they need some treatment. We try to at at the very least allow them that slight bit more of dignity that they should pass away in a hospital rather than in the prison itself. Although we do have a hospice program within the prison when we do have uh, a geriatric unit and things, so. I I know every state is different. The federal, you know, the federal government, they like to show off. They have their medical facilities. Butner is one of them and a few others around. But uh, it's certainly they can bring people out. You know, there are ways to do that, to, that they can have their treatment and and not have to be. And so certainly, I- like you said, with these these nonviolent criminals to have them on house arrest. There's so many reasons. There's only benefits for everybody. It's it's only cruelty to not. And it, it was one thing that when we're talking about the anti-Semitism about um, about the Silver case, there were comments that came out from Governor Cuomo. He said, "Oh, he, uh, you know, someone from the Hasidic community must have gotten, you know, President Trump's ear or something like that." So there were on both sides of, of the aisle, on both parties. You know, some, you know, I guess it, it's, what it sounds like from the description before was that maybe on the Republican side, it was more that he was a Democrat. And from the Democrat side, it was that he was a Jew. It's, uh, okay, so can I, it's well stated. I, I want to ask uh, Mr. Lewin something. 
Um, do you think a case can be made against the U.S. Attorney's office for wrongful death? Do you think that a suit can be filed? I don't know where, I don't know how it could be filed, but considering every, you know, just the open facts here, is such a thing possible or do they hold too many cards to even start the process? Uh, I mean, I would not in, encourage such a suit. I mean, I certainly somebody could bring it and there would be, in my mind, substantial uh uh, emotional uh, support for it, but and I think that was it was wrong. But I think, given probably the status of the law today and the improbability that a court is going to hold the Bureau of Prisons liable for uh, the death in these circumstances, I think the chances of such a lawsuit are really so slim that I couldn't recommend that it be brought. If somebody brought it, I would say, great. I mean, you know, in terms of the public relations impact of it. But I can't honestly believe that that, would, that kind of a lawsuit would succeed. Uh, but, but as you said, the notoriety, like a Jacques, it might at least put back into the public eye the, the, the deviant things that went on. I, you know, Mr. Raps, I, I know that you are connected with the Jewish press, and I didn't really introduce either of you properly, but are, are you, am I correct that you are the, um, one of the editors uh, of the editorial page? Is that your role there, Mr. Raps? Yeah. In the, in the Jewish press? Yeah. Yes. So let me ask you the question that I, that I thought about. Do you think the press, which you're part of, has become too powerful in its ability to access details of our lives? and spin them into a narrative that fits an agenda. I think what you've said earlier answers that question, but you're part of that, although the Jewish press is not the New York Post. But can, can that, do you think that ship is, is too far gone? Because it seems like, as you said, the press seems to have, seems to have had unwielded power way beyond what they, what they should have been able to do. Well, I mean, I can only speak for, you know, what, what I can do and what... Uh... You know, we do at the uh, at the paper. Um, we don't have control over anybody else, but I can tell you that uh, the issue comes up as to whether or not uh, we have enough of a factual basis to say something and or to claim something, and that uh, many times we'll just take a pass because uh, it uh, it will cause uh, uh, you know emotional harm to the people that uh, we would be rewarding about. So, you know, it is a problem, but if people are sensitive and try to do the right thing, it, uh, it doesn't have to be a problem. But I, 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 I still, you know, to this day, cannot um, fathom how it came to be that it's like it seemed almost every other day, there was an article in the New York Post and in the Daily News uh, about Shelley Silver and about how he was the paradigmatic corrupt official. And, and this is not just an academic concern because as was mentioned before by Nat and uh, Alan, the statute itself that, they, that he and Felix were prosecuted under is a very vague one. And it really 
the way I understand it, I by no means a criminal lawyer, but the way I understood it is it did not it doesn't draw it it doesn't necessarily draw a distinction between uh, at least on its terms on its face a distinction between self dealing which means you know you profit from your position or, or uh, bribery and there's no question that that uh, as Nat said that political figures attract clients to their law practice because people assume that they have much, a lot of juice. And um, so they think that uh, in the case of the doctor in the case, in Shelley's case, um, he was trying to get, I, the argument would be he was trying to get the best lawyer for his client will get the best recovery for his clients, for his patients. And so that's why he referred him to Shelley. And in terms of um, uh, the publicity, that when, when, a, when a, a jury of laymen is presented with, with the, the fact that, that he made something, he made a profit, the issue is whether or not it was just self-dealing, which is, as Matt said, is routine, is, is common practice, in, in New York politics, um, whether whether that uh, arises to the level of a crime, how are they going to make that distinction? It's impossible. They don't, yeah, it's a very sophisticated thing that has to be done. Of course, that's an argument you can make on many jury trials when the issue is is sophisticated and, as we call in Hebrew, dacustic. How do you expect these laymen to be able to understand that, even if they are taught yeah, but you know, well by a judge? You You're right. But you know, there's a particular uh, factor here. This started, this, the whole thing with Shelley and Dean Skilo started because, and if you just look at the uh, press clippings, the prosecutor in New York got on a, on a bandwagon to dis, dis, dismantle the three men in a, ro a room way that government was run in New York State. You had the governor, the, the uh, speaker of the assembly, and the majority leader of the state senate. They would sit in a room and make decisions that were binding on the, on the millions and millions of citizens of New York. He, every other day, says, I'm going to knock that out. I'm going to destroy that. So he comes, and what does he do? He looks at it, he has a statute, which is very vague. And in the normal course, if he didn't have a reason to go forward, other than whether or not crimes were committed, if he, if he was just looking dispassionately to say, well, you know, there is some ambiguity here. There may well be a crime, and maybe I personally think there is a crime, but do, will I be able to prove it? And decisions are, are normally made and saying, well, we're not going to go forward because we're not sure we're going we're gonna to have a real case. And uh, who knows? It's very ambiguous. But in the case where you have a determination that you want to come out with a certain result, your mind works differently. You, you bend towards going forward where ordinarily you would not. And I'm not saying that the prosecutor was corrupt. I'm just saying that, that psychologically, that's the way you go forward. And in the, what happened in the case of Shelley, they made the case. They came up again. They knew that the jury is going to have difficulty parsing this stuff out. And, if you, so and I, I, like Nat, followed it in the newspapers. I wasn't close to the actual prosecution, and I was looking for something like a hemshech. I was looking for a, a connection 
between what the charge of bribery was and actual evidence of a quid pro quo, and it was none. And, and yet the, the judge said that was still an issue for the jury, and the jury couldn't separate because he, clearly he made millions of dollars. Right. And, 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 he, and uh, the person who made that possible benefited from uh, government largesse. They both happened in the same state, in the same time frame, ergo there was a crime. But that should just be the beginning of the inquiry, not the end of it. And I think that's what happened here. In other words, the jury was sensitive or understood that, that the system, and, and you agreed that perhaps the three men in a room system was something that should have been dismantled. But because that was sort of like the, the energy that was pushing things, so everything got clouded because the, the prosecutor was seen as cleaning up the country, cleaning up New York State, making things better. And therefore, there was almost like a wave of we have to, you know, we have to come down hard. Otherwise, we are stuck in some sort of uh, morass. I'm not, I'm not even quarreling with his goal. I mean, if that's what he wanted, okay. I mean, who am I to say? But, but he's the, he's the U.S. Attorney for, for the Southern District. But, but, and and you know, he may may really felt that you know that he had a case. But it's it's loved after. If you look I at understand. it, it's just not right. And what I was just trying to what I was just trying to bring out with, and I'm sorry, I just trying to bring out with you that I think the press by over sensationalizing and the details of Shelley's life and things that they kept on putting into the uh, into the foreground kept on building this idea that, as you said, he was he was he was raking it in, he was making money, he was corrupt. And, and, and you, you take half lies and stories and you put them together, then what you end up with is this, 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 this image of, you know, a fat cat corrupt person, as opposed to what exactly. Mr. Lewin has said, which is that he was a very modest person who, who basically tried to do the best thing that he could. I was closest to him, all the people here tonight, and closer to him than most people were. And I can tell you that there wasn't a finer human being you're going to meet. And the idea that he would break the law is, is just something that I would never enter my mind. And I asked him early on, I said, is there going to be a plea bargain in this case? And he said to me, no. He said, I didn't break the law. I did not break the law. And, and that's why, again, let me say, you say, you know, the, they could try to do away with three people in a room running the New York legislative agenda, but not with the criminal law. I mean, I have spent my life representing defendants. I started off as a prosecutor, but then representing defendants. And if, in fact, people legitimately felt that it was improper to have the governor and the speaker of the assembly and the majority leader of the Senate decide together what the law was going to be in New York, they should have gone to the media, gotten the voters to vote in a certain way, but not to say that these people should be subject to criminal investigation and the criminal process. That's not what the criminal law is designed to do. The criminal law is designed 
to get people who know that they're doing something wrong. They're stealing somebody else's property. You know, Jewish law required hasra before a Bezdin would find Yuchayim of, you know, Misa or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, any kind of punishment. People had to know that they were doing something wrong. And here, as Dennis has said, Shelley Silver did not know that he was doing anything wrong. He did not take a plea bargain because he said, I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I be criminally prosecuted? So you don't get Malthus and you don't get Misa and you don't even get any form of punishment from a Besden without being told that you're doing something that is a violation of the criminal law for which you will be punished as a criminal. And yet that was what was done to Shelley Silver. Well, I, 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 I want to thank everyone that was here. And I hope that we can, uh, I'm sure all of us hope that not only does uh, has a Nisham B'Shev and Aliyah from what we've discussed here uh, in, in his memory, but also that we should see some changes and that there shouldn't be uh, other victims of this type of uh, of this type of injustice, and perhaps what we've talked about here will will, will make a difference. Whether it's in terms of bettering the uh, the health facilities, whether it's making clearer what the, the distinctions between criminal and ethical charges are, and also as as Ms. Professor Dershowitz said, that if one of the Jewish people are in trouble in this way, that there shouldn't be an abandonment of him. That we should try to use our political clout and to stay behind them and not abandon someone just because he's uh, in, uh, he's the unpopular flavor of the month or represents orthodoxy. So uh, thank you again. It was really great. All of you took our cold call uh, to speak with us. And I, I hope in some way or fashion, we could still do this perhaps in some other way on some other situation and, and, and only in a, in a positive way. Thank you so much, everybody. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.